Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. <laughs> Total Surveillance Total Surveillance? Total Surveillance. It's a bit hyperbolic. I mean, yes, everything is being recorded. SMS, GPS, email, voice, videos, pictures, bank documents, everything. It is all somewhere. And not like somewhere in a metal box in a ditch somewhere. Somewhere on the internet, protected from total exposure to the world only by passwords and encryption, all of which have been proven to be fallible. But total surveillance that we're always being warned about, total surveillance, come on. There is a difference between everything being recorded and everything being spied upon. There has to be a will. Information wants to be free, yes, but some information really, really, really wants to be free. Celebrity crotch shots, for example. Massive databases of dudes trying to cheat on their wives with robots. Hillary Clinton's emails. Texts from 2007 where you joked about terrorism. And somewhere on the list, 
towards the bottom, 40 years of documentation of offshore tax evasion. That is what they call high value information. That's the stuff that somebody might actually take the trouble to hack and spy on. So this age of total surveillance that we've been warned about is actually looking like an age of fits and starts, you know, of, of leaks, drips, and floods. I've been keeping an eye on a slew of these stories, stories about security and spying. Some of these stories are being told by the media, some are being ignored by the media, and some of them are actually about the media. And I will be talking about all of them today with Matt Braga. Matt is the former editor of Vice Canada's Motherboard technology site. He's a national security and technology reporter who has published investigations and articles with The Globe and Mail, Ars Technica, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. He joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Richard Ackerman, Louis Bennett, Jean-Marc Lemire, John Crowley, Matt Walton, Rob Becker, Aaron Soloway, and Karen Engel. Karen, why did you decide to be awesome? Because when you stumble, you own it. And because you bring people on the show for actual debate, not just to have a fight, but to show an issue in all its complexity. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the way to do your billing. If you are running a small business, if you are a freelancer, this is how you send invoices. You don't draft them in Microsoft Word and send that. You do them in FreshBooks. It looks better. It takes less time. You can see when people read them. You can do all of this from the mobile app or from a desktop. You will get paid faster. They have studied this and found that it is true. You get paid faster when you use FreshBooks. It is like your personal accounting department. 
Try it out for free for 30 days. It is stupid simple. You'll save all kinds of time to put towards your actual job. Again, you can try it out for free for 30 days. Why not do that right now? Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them who sent you. You'll be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. I have some not great news to share with you before we start the show today. A few weeks ago on this program, you may recall my conversation with Chandler Levac, who I was announcing at the time as the host of our upcoming arts show, The Imposter. Well, after we made that announcement, Chandler was offered a job elsewhere. She decided to take that opportunity and will not be hosting The Imposter. I cannot lie to you. We are bummed out. We were very excited about Chandler. So we have put the imposter on hold because we are not going ahead with this show until we find somebody who we are as excited to work with as the host of what is going to be the best art show in Canada. If you bought tickets to the launch event uh, scheduled for April 20th at Blur Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto, that theater will be in touch with you about a refund if they haven't been in touch with you already. So April 27th is no longer the launch date for The Imposter. We wish Chandler all the best with what she's going to do instead. We really do. And we're going to tell you more about The Imposter as soon as we have those details for you. I just want to talk a bunch of, uh, of spy shit with you. Yeah, let's do it. Security, surveillance. Yep. Spy shit. Yeah. I guess we have to start with the Panama Papers. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that an unnamed, completely anonymous, anonymous even to the journalist, whistleblower, mm-hmm. through encrypted channels, contacted a German journalist and leaked this incredible massive database of offshore banking information from a Panamanian law firm. Mossack Francesca. And uh, in order to process this very, very big uh, dump of information, 400 journalists, and this is what's really incredible is that, is that this happened in secrecy. Uh, over a year. For over a year, 400 journalists around the world went through this because you know when you're talking about tax avoidance and tax havens and tax shelters, this is often done on behalf of people. So Putin is getting burned by this because people connected to him are implicated. Yeah. And he may have had something to do with that. RBC mm-hmm. set up over the years 370 shell companies, and there are apparently 350 Canadian citizens whose names appear in these documents. And our press is going to great lengths and the financial post and oh, this is, you know, there's no necessarily any impropriety. This all may have fallen within the law. I don't think that the point here is to find a, the name of a famous person and then and then say, oh well, this was against the law. I want to know What's been going on with the wealthiest people in Canada and and have they been shielding massive assets from taxation somewhere in in, in the range of six to seven point eight billion dollars a year that is being sheltered from taxation here in Canada? I mean, the thing that gets me is that, you know, when you have all these articles that are going to great lengths to say, and, you know, by the way, this is perfectly, you know, probably perfectly legal. I mean, that for me makes me go like, well, hold on a second. Like, let's really dive into like, what are the sort of systemic legal sort of frameworks that have allowed this to be perfectly legal for so long? Like, here are all these wealthy people and businesses and celebrities that are tied up in these tax havens. Now let's figure out, like, how did we get here? How do we change this? Do we want to change this? I think a lot of people would say, yeah. That's it. This isn't, I don't necessarily, I mean, maybe it's the opportunity for gotcha journalism, but I think that there's probably a a deeper, more substantive story here. And it comes at a time when the CRA, uh, the CBC just did some fantastic work exposing the fact that the CRA basically gave amnesty to a bunch of offshore tax cheats and said, we found you out. If you come in and, and allow yourself to be taxed, we're not going to pursue you in any kind of criminal way. Then the news breaks that uh, Trudeau's liberals are giving the CRA $444 million, I believe, to fight tax avoidance and tax cheats. Like maybe we need to start asking some questions 
about what the wealthiest Canadians are doing and what they're giving back. I want your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. So the star and the CBC ha- share the exclusive on this. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, this is like a textbook case for collaborative journalism. 400 journalists were required. The capacity, we're only like a week into this. Mm-hmm. So obviously, there's more to come. What real advantage is there for these two news organizations to hoard this data? You know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, when all the Snowden documents came out and you saw these arguments of like, no, we're still going through it. We're still coming through it. We haven't even looked at a fraction of what we have. And I think if you're, you know, a news organization like the CBC or the Toronto Star or, or you know, any of the other international partners, it's like, well, why would we want to give up this competitive advantage when there could be all of this gold that we just haven't even seen yet? We haven't even gotten to it. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, it's always sort of easier to say that, you know, grass is always greener when you're a freelancer and you're like, yeah, I want the documents, give them to me now. But, you know, and and then there's also the argument as well that you see where, you know, well, we have to go through and we have to redact certain things. And there may be less so in the Panama Papers example. No, they're making that argument. They're saying, you know, we don't, we're we're not WikiLeaks. They said this, the uh, the consortium. Okay. We're not WikiLeaks. We're not just going to dump this. We're going to be responsible because just because your name is on this list doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. There's lots of legitimate reasons that you could have an offshore... Sure. Maybe you're building property in the Bahamas. That that happens sometimes. I mean, the flip side being, I I remember when the Ashley Madison hack came out and, um, you know, you had uh, these searchable databases, right, of all the emails that were in the Ashley Madison database. And, you know, it quickly became apparent that just because your email was in Ashley Madison's database didn't mean that you were a member of Ashley Madison. And so you suddenly had this sort of situation where, you know, a lot of explainer journalism of like, hey, just so you know, if you search in, you know, someone's email and it comes up, doesn't mean they were cheating on you. You know, again, I guess that sort of comes down to how much do you trust people to sort of, you know, be smart and intelligent and make up their own minds. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're in a country where, you know, the Irving family, I believe they're still the wealthiest family. Their entire operation was offshore. You know, like we we need to start talking about the fact that the billionaires of Canada are looking for every way to not pay their share of taxes. It's it's about talking about what is legal and maybe shouldn't be. Which is the less sexy story, I think, which is always the hard part, right? It's like, how do you make a, how do you make a story that is steeped in like legalese and process and I guess politics to a certain degree, right? Like, how do you make that interesting? And it seems like, you know, with, with a lot of the stories that have been coming out first, it's like, well, you know, we use celebrities, we use big political figures, we use things that people can really glom onto. And, um, it's easier to go with that, right. than to sort of come out of the gates with a, you know, the system is broken and here is why. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, not that I necessarily think that that's better, but you know, I love process and legalese and all that sort of esoteric stuff. Okay. Let's move on. I'm glad we started there just because I think pretty much everything else we're going to talk about has to do with surveillance cutting the other way. We have kind of like cooled off on C-51 since the, the uproar, because I think that when it was, you know, it, it felt so compatible with what people didn't like about the Harper administration. And yet C-51 is in... It's, it's being used. CSIS came out at the beginning of March and said, yeah, we're using our disruption powers, which we still kind of don't really know what they are. Like it's been sort of trotted out in vague terms. Like, you know, CSIS can disrupt people by um, interrupting like flight bookings or financial transactions or like Twitter accounts or, you know, it's been characterized as, as hacking in some cases. But it's, you know, we don't really have any sort of insight as to 
what or why or when I think of uh, <laughs> when I think of law enforcement disrupting subversives, I think of like kind of classic there stories of the RCMP infiltrating various protest movements and right. disrupting in that sense. But we're we're really just like stumbling in the dark here, and we don't mean disruptive in the Uber sense. This is a different sort of disruption, <laughs> but they're doing it. They've admitted that they're doing it, and without a warrant in in uh, some of the cases, right? You know, mm-hmm. the idea being that you know if we're not violating charter rights, then we're just going to go ahead and do this. And C-51 does allow for the, for the violation of charter rights. It also means, and this is a, I'm reading from a recent Globe and Mail editorial that was calling for a bit of transparency on what the Trudeau government, yeah. and, or at least under the Trudeau government, what law enforcement is doing. The government is apparently using peace bonds, the Globe wrote, under the related bill C-44 in cases where people are believed to be making references sympathetic to terrorism on social media. I think that we're in the minority report territory here of um, uh, fighting future crimes, fighting crimes that have not yet been committed, which is something that C-51 opens the door to. So it lowered the threshold from, you know, will commit a terrorist act to is likely or may commit a terrorist act, which sort of, you know, as you say, the puts threshold you in. for what? If, if you uh, are likely or might do it, then now you can... Yeah. Then, then now we're going to arrest you and, you know, we're going to, we're going to come and we're going to knock down your door and we're going to say, come with us because there's no evidence that, you know, there's necessarily an imminent attack, but you know, maybe you've been talking with certain people on the internet or you follow certain Twitter accounts and, and we believe that, you know, this may lead to something bad down the road. I don't know. Again, it's not clear, right? It's like who, who knows what the, the ground rules for a, uh, you know, may likely commit is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and like so many things on this beat, because they can always claim, well, we can't uh, expose our own methods because we're trying to fight terrorism. So there's there's that plausible deniability for, for providing journalists with, with uh, transparency there. What is, I think, harder to justify is the liberal government's secrecy on how they plan to change C-51. Because Justin Trudeau supported C-51. Mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau's government is using C-51. But he promised when campaigning that he's going to change it. Hasn't said how. Yeah, they, it was going to repeal the, uh, you know, the less savory bits, right? And we, we yeah, I know, right? And it's like, well, we still don't really know what you mean by less savory bits. We still don't really have a timeline. I mean, you know, there's there's some sort of, I've never really been able to understand whether, um, you know, his idea of like, you know, repeal has now morphed into, well, there's going to be oversight because they've been talking about setting up this like national security oversight committee um, since the election where basically, you know, well, we're going to have all these rules in place. You know, CSIS can do their thing. Canada's electronic spy agency, CSE, can do their thing, but there'll be oversight. Um, and they haven't even talked about that very much publicly, if at all, either. So that's sort of been another, you know, who, who knows? Who knows what exactly is happening with any of this? Oversight has been a big failure when it comes to CSC and CSIS in the past, mm-hmm. CSC has this... Uh, but the- CSC has never acted illegally, they like to remind you, in, in all of the sort of, you know, reports and things that uh, the uh, CSC uh, commissioner puts out. So it's it's always so... Well, the CSC commissioner only can deal with the information the CSC commissioner has. When this was yes. something that I looked at a bit more closely, <laughs> I remember when the CSC commissioner said, I actually can't verify this year that you've been acting legally because some very important documentation has been missing yeah. from your annual filing. So, th- so he couldn't conclusively say that you've been acting illegally, but he said, I, I will not give you the green light and, and sign off on this mm-hmm. because something was misplaced here. And then we also know that CSC has, they, they've turned themselves in for uh, going past the point where they're supposed to in our metadata. Yep. So we know that they have been stepping over the line. 
And we can kind of like, well, let's continue our conversation to what you've been covering lately. Cause like determining the line of when surveillance and, and law enforcement intrusion into our private communication is legal and is illegal is one thing that we, we can look at. Mm-hmm. But even when it's illegal, it still seems to be happening. So back in March, I worked with Colin Fries, who's the Globe and Mail's national security reporter, on a handful of stories on uh, these things called IMC catchers, I-M-S-I catchers, um, cell site simulators. Um, sometimes they're called stingrays, as you said, because that's the name of a, a particular brand of, of IMC catcher. Uh, and essentially what these devices are is they, uh, you know, they can be configured in a lot of different ways, but they masquerade as cell towers. So, you know, Bell, Rogers, Telus, they all set up their cell towers around a, um, you know, they all set up their cell towers around a city. Your phone connects to them and you get your cell phone service. And then, you know, someone with an MC catcher comes along and this MC catcher can essentially emit signals that make it look like a Bell, Rogers, Telus cell phone tower uh, and force you to connect to it. And then once you've connected, can, you know, sort of suck up all this, uh, you know, identifying information about a cell phone. Things like, you know, phone number, but also, uh, you know, this identifying, uh, you know, an IMSI number, right? It's it's the sort of number that identifies a handset, um, you know, things that can be used to essentially identify someone and then track them over time. And my understanding is that they're indiscriminate. If you turn this thing on, it just grabs all information in a certain radius. Yeah. So, you know, when you turn one of these devices on, what ends up happening is uh, because it's pretending to be a cell phone tower, all of these phones in a radius, they connect to it. And, uh, you know, essentially what happens is, you know, police say, well, you know, we only use this to target specific suspects, right? We use these devices. It sucks in all this information. And then, you know, our, our devices sort of sift through all the data that we collect and, you know, just to sort of focus in on that, like one particular suspect, that one person. But in the process of this, you know, all happening, right, they're having to sort of, you know, they're having to ping every phone in an area, right? They're having to go ping, 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 ping until they find the phone that they're looking for. And so just by nature of this, like, device operating, right, you're sucking up all of the sort of other stuff that's, that's yeah. around. And that so. other stuff basically t- tells you that these, th- you know, if you, if you were to use one of these things in downtown Toronto, you would know the whereabouts of thousands of people. You would be able to say that, like all of these people were here at this time. Yep. And there are laws about that is surveillance. Mm-hmm. You've, you've, you've tracked the whereabouts of thousands of people who you don't have wor- the warrants to track. And then what is the protocol for what they do with that data? Do they throw away everything that is not the person they're looking for? Oh man. Like I, I, we, we don't know, right? Like we don't know what the retention policy is. So how long they keep this data for where it's stored, what they do with it. Like it's just... It, it's so, I mean, up until recently in Canada, uh, no one would even admit to owning or using these devices. So I, I think that's sort of the crux of sort of what Colin and I did last month is that, you know, we uh, finally, like we had been, you know, both working at this for, you know, diff- from different angles for the past few years and finally realized that, okay, we had something. Uh, and it showed that the RCMP was using one of these devices in Montreal in a, uh, in a mob, uh, you know, a mob case. You know, that was the first time, like, you know, we had gone to the RCMP before and we said, you know, are you using these? And they'd say, oh, well, we can't talk about our, you know, sort of, you know, procedures and operations and things like that. Filed many an access to information request. Uh, those always come back exempt or or not at all because they say, well, no, we don't have to tell you anything because of national security reasons. Um, and so this was sort of a breakthrough because we found that, you know, the RCMP was using these devices. Also, Correctional Services Canada had used one of these devices at a prison, which was also a, a interesting sort of case in its own right. Can you tell those stories um, really quickly? Like, what, 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 you know, what were they trying to learn about the mob by using one of these? The, the sort of Cliff Notes version of 
is that there was a mafia murder and they were trying to figure out who exactly, you know, was responsible for this murder. You know, they knew all of these different people were communicating using cell phones, but they were all using pseudonyms and they didn't know the identities of any of the people. And so uh, essentially they wanted to use this device to help sort of further identify where we're not entirely clear, right, on whether it was used just to, you know, identify like information relating to the phone. So something that they could then plug into a database elsewhere or something like that. Um, You know, we don't know if it was used to find location, even though that's possible, right? You know, the RCMP's argument was, well, you know, this wasn't like a core part of our investigation. Like this helped push another part of our investigation along, which is why we don't really want to talk about it. And they revealed Um, this as part of the trial against the mobsters? Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, the trial never really, like it was a totally separate thing. Like this was all sort of a, it was a separate sort of hearing that was happening because, you know, there was this trial against the mobsters and, uh, you know, the lawyers for one of the mobsters basically said, well, hang on a second. Like we want to know more about this technique that you used to identify our our client. Uh, And so then there was this sort of separate sort of, you know, hearing motion that kind of went down the road where, you know, it was going back and forth as to, well, you know, will the RCMP tell us more? Do they have to tell us more? And ultimately, you know, the judge decided, well, no, the RCMP doesn't have to tell you more about uh-huh. this particular. And so that, that was ended. an opportunity for you to find out what you've been trying to yes. get for a long time, which is how does the RCMP use this? Exactly. And when the judge said no, and that was it, that was it, that was it. So, and, and, you know, it's unfortunate, right? Because it's like, when are we going to have this chance again? Um, what about at the jail? So the jail was, in, I mean, the jail, um, CTV broke the story last fall when, um, you know, they, uh, someone had supplied them with some documents that um, it was like a memo from the warden of uh, Workworth prison. Basically, it was this memo apologizing to staff because they had bought this device and they had set it up and they, they wanted to use this device to find contraband cell phones in the prison. And uh, in the process of, you know, turning on this device, realized that, you know, not only had they collected information about devices within the prison, they had also hoovered up information about staff at the prison. Uh, and then the way they realized this, they were like, oh, shit, what have we done? Uh, and, um, you know, shut down the device. And then it became this whole thing, right? It was like, oh, crap, we accidentally spied on our own staff. And the warden, um, I, I read the the note that he sent to staff where he apologized to the yeah. correction officer saying, we've also uh, accidentally hoovered up your text message conversations text and, messages. and voice conversations. Yep. And there's been some debate as to whether or not these machines can actually do that or not. So either the warden was erroneous, he, like he felt that he had informa- we, information he didn't have, or the, these devices are sucking up more than I understood them to be able to suck up. So so we don't know is the problem. So, you know, Colin and I were looking at these documents and, um, you know, we have on the one hand, the guy who, you know, the prison uh, contracted to set up this device saying, uh, you know, no, 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 like it never sucked up text messages or phone calls. But then you have the warden saying, well, no, it did suck up text messages or phone calls. We know that the devices can be configured to do so. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like that, that is a, a function of certain types of devices. And there's all these caveats, right? Like it depends on the type of phone. It depends on the network. Like, all sorts of caveats, right, as to whether you can suck this up. And so we're not sure. We don't know. Um, what's interesting is that the uh, the union representing the, um, you know, uh, the, the correctional staff, um, there's currently a, a court case going on uh, yeah. against the, you know, against the prison. Which is how them. this is coming out, I imagine? Um, yeah. Which, is, well, I mean, this is how we got more details, right. right? I mean, there was first the leaked document to CTV, and then, of course, we all filed access to information requests, and then that got us more information. Um, you know, that got us information about, uh, like, you know, when CTV wrote the 
this document or sorry, wrote this uh, article in the first place. It was just based on the memo and there was speculation like, oh, this could be an MC catcher, but we don't know. Right. And then we all filed access to information request and then we discovered, oh, yeah, no, this was totally an MC catcher. So that was the thing that hadn't really been, you know, like everyone speculated last fall. Um, but then, you know. We got all these access to information requests back that basically confirmed, like, yeah, it was an MC catcher. And, like, we know it's an MC catcher because, you know, well, we talked to the guy that operated it, but also, like, the company that they contracted with, um, Smith Myers. I mean, I started poking around and none of this made it into the story, unfortunately, but, like, you know, Privacy International wrote this report up last fall where, you know, they um, implicated Smith Myers in basically selling surveillance equipment to uh, the Colombian government where uh-huh. it was, like, used for human rights abuses and stuff. So it's like, there's a whole other thing there where it's like, you know, Canadian prison contract surveillance device that was used to violate human rights in Colombia. Columbia, like yeah you know? <laughs> well i love this story for so many reasons it, it 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 really reveals so much of what is troubling about the state of surveillance right now because it's all in this completely murky gray zone like, <laughs> can any like just a warden of a prison just like order one of these things off the internet i mean it is almost certainly illegal under i think pipetta under the under, under the federal privacy law telecommunications under, or the radio communications act right yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just some basic tenets here. you can't just spy on people without any, who you have no jurisdiction over. So when you do that in this mobster case, and, and there's just like citizens who, whose information you're sucking up or in the prison where your own employees, I mean, he was apologizing to the correction officers because they're, they're, they're like nervous that their <laughs> personal communications with their loved ones with each other is being read by their boss. Can I mean, you imagine just, the warden sitting there and just like, you know, scrolling through a screen and it's just like your sexts or just up on the screen. Yeah. Like, no, you know, no, looking for that contraband phone for yeah. the, for the, uh, the drug exchange in the jail. So I'll just ignore this. I'll ignore this. Oh, yeah. there we go. That's the one I'm looking for. <laughs> and who's, who's looking over this like yeah who, who's actually making sure that this stuff is being done it, it seems like it's just uh, kind of a wild west for anybody who has some sort of perception of their own authority to, <laughs> to hire and totally. it was like it wasn't a ton of money that uh, w- w- what did you guys it was only uh it was like ninety five hundred dollars yeah um so like nine thousand five hundred and to be clear it didn't sound like they were purchasing the device they were just sort of contracting it right so yeah. like the device we we were never clear on what the value of the device was because they blocked it all out and all the a tips that we got back but um they basically just paid this contract like you know 9500 bucks that covered his time that covered like room and board for like a month or two or something um and then he you know came on over from montreal and you know did his thing like it was it was funny it was yeah <laughs> and, and if the warden hadn't hadn't whatever bout of conscience to apologize so who knows how often this oh. is happening elsewhere well and that that was i think my favorite part about reporting on all this was you know i i had started working on this um, uh, over two years ago. I had written a story for the Globe and Mail. You know, at the time, there had been all these stories in the United States about, you know, there's all these devices, local police forces are using them, da-da-da-da-da, and there was nothing in Canada. And so I wrote the story basically saying, like, who the hell's using them? Let's find out. Um, you know, and then so I went to all the agencies. That was when the RCMP said, no, we haven't been using them. But my favorite was I went to Industry Canada, which is supposed to sort of, you know, they they regulate all of the telecommunications and, you know, radio infrastructure and stuff. Not the CRTC, which is what I initially thought. It's actually Industry Canada or whatever they're called now. They're called like... Um, uh, they have a stupid name now. They have a now. Trudeau-ish name. Yeah, they it's bad. It's so bad. Happy Business uh, Club. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty much. Like, innovation and economic science development. Can- like, no. Um, but, uh, so, you know, you go to Industry Canada, and I'm like, hey, like, you know, is anyone using these devices? And they're like, no, no one's using them. Uh-huh. Like you, and, and more so, they're like, no, you have to come to us if you want to use them. Um, and so, you know, I, I um, uh, you know, went back to them again, uh, like, you know, in February or something, because I was, you know, 
pulling all these threads again. And they told me unequivocally, they're like, no, we have never, never authorized one of these devices for use in Canada. Like there are literally no MC catchers for use in Canada. Haven't authorized them. It would probably be illegal if you did use one under the Radio uh-huh. Communications Act. And I was like, okay. And then we go back to them and we're like, so we do have evidence though that people have been using them. Like, like what? What did they say to that? Exactly. It was a very unsatisfying answer. They they started kind of quibbling about, um, well, the RCMP's characterization of their device, you know, I mean, we'd have no way of knowing if it's actually an MC catcher or not because, you know, at the time they were calling it like a mobile device identifier yeah. or something like vague. I like, would say we're five to 10 years from <laughs> clarity and, and guidelines around these devices, by which time who knows what kind of technology they'll have for surveillance. I mean, it, it's so funny because it's like, you know, in some ways, um, reporting on all this for Canada is kind of fun because, you know, invariably all of this stuff ends up coming out in the United States first and in other countries. Uh, and then it kind of makes it easy in some ways because I can then kind of turn around and just like go to Canadian authorities and say, well, all of this stuff is being used in your partner countries, you know, because Canada's, you know, if you start getting into five eyes stuff, the five eyes is uh, what is it? It's it's a intelligence sharing uh, organization that includes Canada, the U.S., the U.K., New Zealand, I'm afraid Australia. Australia. Yeah. yeah. So five eyes. Um, so, you know, anyways, there's all this information sharing. And so it's like, you know, if law enforcement in the U.S. are using something be yeah. it you know hacking tools be it stingray like it's, it's like anything else the, yeah. the americans have iphones why can't we yeah i remember oh, back exactly <laughs> right so you know it, it's it's great it's fun it's just like i get to turn around and say well hey are you guys using these you bring up uh your colleague colin freeze um who has been on the show before and he does excellent work his name came up recently mm-hmm. in an interesting context we've asked him about it he hasn't responded i, I just like feel like this has to be talked about and there's like i want to absolutely headline this. There is no suggestion of impropriety or anything illicit, but I am very curious as to the truth of this story and what actually was going on. So I'm making you very uncomfortable. I, I have no idea what you're about to launch into. So you know I, what I'm about to talk about. The, the, the Colin Kenny and Colin Freeze's uh, constant breakfasts. Did you not read about this? No. Matt. No. What? what? <laughs> All right. I'm going to just go through this really quickly because while we're talking about the national security beat, this is sure. just something and, I, and just on a media criticism show, the mm-hmm. relationship between national security reporters and government is of interest to me. Okay. So we all know that uh, RCMP has been looking at senators. I mean, forget Duffy. It's mm-hmm. Colin Kenny. Uh, don't forget Duffy, but Colin Kenny, my God, this guy has really been up to quite a bit. And so Colin Kenny is the only senator who took part in, in the most recent arbitration but whose case was not dismissed by the RCMP. And what they found is that over a two-year period, Colin Kenny charged taxpayers more than $150,000 in travel, which uh, Supreme Court Justice a lot of money. Ian Binney called, they said, <laughs> the judge said there is an air of artificiality about many of these trips. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is uh, an understatement. He would come to Toronto again and again. He would eat at Scaramouche, where they still serve aspic. He would visit his grandson and... All of this on the taxpayer dime, and there's just no, you know, at least in the eyes of this uh, of this justice, these are suspicious trips. Mm-hmm. On 17 of these trips, in a period of less than two years, he had breakfast with Colin Freeze huh. at his hotel. Interesting. I found that interesting. And now there are reasons why Colin Freeze would have, as a source, Colin Kenny, uh, he was he had been the chair of the Senate's Standing Committee on National Security and Defense. Sounds like 
a great source mm-hmm. for a reporter like Colin Fries. And the public editor, Sylvia Stead of the Globe Mail, wrote about this in terms of, you know, a, a reader complained, well, who paid for those breakfasts and that angle of, you know. Right. And even that was like a little sounding suspicious to me because like what Colin Fries, I'm not suspicious of Colin here, mm-hmm. Fries, two Collins. He said he would ask Colin Kenny, can I pay for my own breakfast? And Colin Kenny would say, no, I've got vouchers for breakfast. I stay at hotels from time to time. You often get a voucher for breakfast. I've never been given two vouchers when I've been staying by myself. <laughs> like here's, you're staying here by yourself, but here are two vouchers for breakfast. What if he like didn't eat breakfast on a previous trip and he just had the vouchers just sort of like, you know, stored away in his, anyways. <laughs> Let us just assume that Colin <laughs> Kenny, that Colin Fries said, I want to pay for my breakfast. And Colin Kenny said, no, it's it's not on the tax paradigm. It's a voucher. And Colin Fries said, fine, I, I, I don't need to see the voucher. I believe. And then Colin Fries apparently paid the tip. I don't care beyond that. I just want to know like what the heck was like, 17 times the Senator comes to Toronto on dubious grounds and then calls up call, Colin Freese. Like, I, I guess it's totally plausible that there was information, but so like, I'm just trying to think this through. Is it the number of times that, that sort of gets you? Like, is it, is it the frequency of the meetings? It's the frequency of the meetings of Colin Freese's impetus to do this. It's like, I'm going to maintain a relationship with the mm-hmm. source. I'm just like hypothesizing here because I get information. I'm working on stories. Mm-hmm. Colin Kenny's impetus for calling up Colin Freese and saying, have breakfast with me is that it legitimizes these trips as possibly work-related. Right. I guess. But are you in the interests of justifying your like leisure travel to Toronto, feeding information to a reporter? So Colin answered not to me, but to Sylvia Stead saying, mm-hmm. well, I wish I would have asked him a little bit more about why he was visiting Toronto so frequently. Well, but it's interesting because, I mean, that was sort of my first thinking is like, you know, if, if someone says to me that they're going to be in town, um, yeah, I don't know if I would question it either. Like, I guess I would just assume like, oh, you know, this man is an important government person. Like, he's going to be here. And Toronto's I mean, a big city. Toronto's a big city. Like, I don't know. Right. Like and every it, time he comes here, he wants to have breakfast with me and, and as, I, I assumedly give me information for my reporting. I guess. I mean, do we know though that that do we know that Colin Kenny was the one that was in instigating all of the breakfasts? Like, we don't know who been... called who. We right. don't know who called who. So, like, I, and I, I am not suggesting any impropriety. I don't find this dubious. I find it interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to know. I want to know everything. <laughs> and, and, and I know like, there's reasons why journalists can't talk about their sources or which stories it informed. And I'm going through Colin Fries's old stuff, and I'm looking at like which like what I want to know how these these channels of information and power work. Sure. I, I want to know more about it. I don't necessarily think that Colin Fries owes me an explanation about mm-hmm. how he goes about his relationships with his sources, but this did peel back a layer of something. And I'm, I'm just incredibly curious. Now. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when Colin and I were working on, um, uh, you know, these stories last month on the MC catchers, right? Like we had breakfast and, and you know, we had beer. Like we, it's, it's funny. Like I not even kidding. We had breakfast. We went out and we sat down, we had a bagel and then we like went over all our stuff. I mean, I think when I think about, um, you know, for the past, if I think about the past two years and the number of times that I have met with Colin um, over like beers or breakfast, just to like chat about stories. and Dudes and have start, breakfast, it happens. Sure. But like even just to sort of chat about work stuff, like we've probably had beers and met up about that many times. Right. In your collaboration um, as fellow it, journalists working on. on a, yeah. Or even just like people working on the same beat. Right. It's sure. always nice to like, you know, I've, I've done this with, um, um, you know, I've done this with Alex Boudelier. I can't really say what the, uh, what the reason for the breakfast was on either end. Right. Like who knows, but you know, meeting with someone 17 times over the span of two years, I mean, that in of itself maybe doesn't surprise me, 
right? Like just putting aside the, you know, fact of like, was Colin Kenny using this as like an excuse to come to Toronto? I don't know. Right. But, you know, if I'm someone who, uh, you know, regularly is, is getting information from someone and knows that they're reliable and has given me stories in the past, you know, I would probably be more inclined if that person called me up and they were in the city and said, hey, do you want to have breakfast? I'd probably say like, yeah, let's see what they have to say today. Right. Like, yeah, who, or, or even know? or even like if there are three breakfasts in between, like, you know, you, you, you keep the line to your sources alive. Yeah. You know, and, and you to the extent that journalists become sort of friendly with sources or socialize with sources. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is part of the job is maintaining that like Rolodex of contacts. Yeah. This is what Colin said. And we'll and we'll and we'll move on to have been found by a retired Supreme Court judge to have been invoked as a recurring and primary pretext for taxpayer funded travel that was not warranted. I should have raised more questions about the travel than I did, and I regret having not done so. Okay. Colin Freeze, if you ever want to talk about this a little bit more, I'm here, man. <laughs> it's a standing offer. Matt, finally, I want to talk about uh, Ben McCoo. Yeah. Your former colleague. Ben's when, a good guy. Ben's a good guy. Advice. And I think that, uh, as I've said, I, I, I'm trying to remember how much of this I said on Twitter and how much of this I said on the show, but uh, uh, not everybody catches every episode, so let's let's summarize what's been going on here. Sure. Uh, you want to take a stab at the summary? Yeah. So, uh, you know, over the course of, I guess it was uh, late 2014, early 2015, Ben had been working on a series of ISIS-related stories, um, had scored some interviews with a, uh, he was a Canadian citizen, correct, that ended up sort of leaving the country and going to, uh, and, and going to uh, you know, overseas. And uh, I don't know exactly where specifically that he was based, but he went overseas um, and was, I guess, fighting for ISIS. And was he the same one that, that, destroyed his passport was that him that's him um, yeah okay. real real uh kind of a, a blowhard who uh like kind of speaking in hip-hop ease to ben like and, and very flagrantly you know communicating over kind of open kick mm-hmm. messenger using kick messenger they they i know that they organized a uh interview with him a video interview via skype so i think Sh- uh, shane smith uh and him both did uh an interview yeah shane skype, smith so. totally came and swooped down on that story he's if if, if ben found an isis guy shane shane's gonna get a piece of that anyhow that was Ben's story, and it wasn't like he had some. It, there was no confidentiality about the, the name of the source or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he'd been communicating with a guy who left Canada to join ISIS, and yeah. uh, the RCMP came in and said, "We want all your files. We want everything." And Ben, I think, quite rightly said, "Absolutely not. No, <laughs> uh, we we don't do that." Uh, and people have been asking, "Well, what's the problem with this? I mean, this is a national security issue. They have a, a, an obvious, clear interest in finding this guy. Uh, why why shouldn't Ben hand it over?" And the reasons that Ben gave when I spoke to him on this show and, and the reasons that he gave in court were like, look, there is a very dangerous precedent here. No one is ever going to give me confidential information ever again Yeah. if everything that I have just gets handed over to the RCMP. And furthermore, journalists are not law enforcement agents. We are not an extension. We're not doing your investigations for you. And, and everything breaks down. The court did not agree. Ben was ordered to hand over the files. He tells me that they're, they're, they they plan to appeal. He's also told me that he will go to jail before he hands over his files. Have you talked to him about that since? I saw that tweet of yours and I, I totally forgot that he had, I guess, said that. And I was, yeah, what, what's, what's he going to do? He has not updated his position on that. Uh, he, he hasn't. Necessarily... I don't blame him. I mean, that's like. <laughs> I wouldn't think any less of him if he if he changed his mind about that. I think yeah. that you know, especially because he's saying like, look, I don't even have anything. I have no identifying information with this guy. You know his name, but I can't. But I'm a journalist and I can't give you my files. If if it comes down to like going to jail for years or doing so, when in fact the information itself is is it doesn't actually expose a source, 
I could see him thinking twice about that. Um, but I think that uh, right now the position is unchanged from when he said, no, I will go to jail uh, before I do that. And I think that Vice is standing by him and appealing. I feel like this is not getting the attention and the severity that it requires from the journalistic community in Canada. They don't realize or are not making en- enough of a stink about this because this, I believe, is an attack on all of us. Do you agree? Is this a mountain out of a molehill? No, I mean, I think, you know, the point that you raised is is very good where it's like, you know, as someone who has, you know, similarly sort of, you know, talked with people online who don't want their, you know, perhaps identities or locations or or information revealed, right? The fact that police can basically say, you know, thanks for doing all this work for us now give it all over like it's just it why would anyone trust you like why would anyone trust talking to you and want to talk to you and give you information right like some sources are are smarter than others some sources have well, i shouldn't say smarter some sources have different sort of levels of understanding of you know how these sorts of systems work right encryption which is, exactly and you know which is why you see things like with the panama papers right where this person you know never wanted to meet only communicated over encrypted chat because you know ultimately like you want to be in this position where you know if the police do come to you and say give us all your stuff like to be able to say to them well no i have nothing because it was all encrypted i have no files like nothing to give you right you know watching this case unfold over the past year has certainly made me think harder about how i deal with sources and the sorts of information that i store and where i store it and like it's just it's it's so hard like i mean once you really sit down and start thinking about like how you how you take notes and how you store information and how you communicate sources and you realize you know, it, it's like in your day-to-day life, right? Like you realize how many different like breadcrumbs and metadata and like just things that you leave behind over the course of doing yeah. your job. And it's like, holy shit, like how can I how can I do this? And like now I have to think about like how am I going to protect all this stuff in case police come knocking now? Like it's just... Have you have you stepped up your data hygiene game? I mean, you know, like it's something that I, I think about a lot, right? Like, you know, I, I think about, you know, how I encrypt things and like where I store things and the level of encryption that I use on certain things and, and services and things like that. Like, you know, I have people that I only talk to via like encrypted chat. And like I've been doing that since before the before Ben's case, but it's just sort of, you know, it just makes you think harder, right? About like, oh shit, like, you know, I, you know, think of any story that I'm working on and then kind of just run down the thought experiment of like, what if police came to me tomorrow and said, we want all your files? And then or what if they're <laughs> looking at you through a back door? I mean, you are like, I think the journalists in general and, and security journalists, national security journalists in particular are a prime target. Like, like oh my God, right? Like, yeah. you know, um, and so that's a scary sort of proposition, right? When you think about just, all the people you email and do work with on a daily basis, right? That is this week's Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of CanadaLand Commons will be out on Tuesday. The next episode of CanadaLand Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like what we do, please support us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.